Uh, so we're continuing on uh, in our sermon series today called Christmas Couture. And uh, as you can see uh, from the video, uh, everybody's got a little bit of a different uh, style when it comes uh, to Christmas. And uh, the Bible's the same way. There are these different types of uh, style, these different types of literature uh, all throughout the Bible. But the one thing they all have in common is they point to Jesus. And so I want to kind of set up uh, next week a little bit. Next week will be actually the end of this series, uh, believe it or not. It's gone, it's gone really quick. But uh, next Sunday, um, we're looking at a style of literature uh, called narrative. It's the storytelling of the Bible. Um, and the Bible has a lot of stories. And a lot, a lot of times, I think we mistakenly think that the Bible has a lot of standalone stories. But really, what we want you to see uh, next Sunday in particular is that the Bible really has one story. Um, that, that the Bible is a, a series of stories that all tell one story. And so next Sunday, we know statistically that the, the best options that you ever have to, for an invitation for somebody to come to church are Christmas and Easter. Uh, people almost expect uh, to be invited. And so next Sunday, uh, we're going to tell that one story. Um, and uh, it's a really great Sunday. We've had some invite cards in your bulletins. Um, it's a really great Sunday uh, to invite people to church. Uh, to hear the one story of the Bible, the story uh, of Jesus. Now also, as you know, this time of year, one of the primary ways that we tell the story of Jesus at Christmas time is through music. And so that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring uh, the great romance uh, back. They had done a Christmas concert for us um, a uh, few years ago, and we got hit with an ice storm. Uh, and they were in town, and we decided to go ahead with the concert anyway. We, did, we still had about 75 people come out uh, the, the evening of that ice storm. Um, and so we said, we want to bring you guys back because they really do a great job, uh, the great romance does, of telling the story of, of Christmas in kind of a, a creative and fun way. And so I've already looked ahead at the seven-day forecast. Next Sunday is going to be beautiful, all right? So we really want to pack this place out. Um, if you get a no to Christmas services, you might get a yes to the concert. Um, and, and the other thing about next Sunday is that we are going to have a gift next Sunday uh, related to the Great Romance concert. And so um, especially if you're planning to be at the concert, uh, we really want to invite you uh, back here uh, in the morning and there's going to be kind of a, a cool gift related to that concert. So uh, be sure to come next Sunday and, and kind of see what that is. So uh, Scott set it up well that we are uh, going to talk about <clears throat> the style of literature today um, in the Bible called wisdom literature. And I've been excited about this sermon for a couple weeks. Um, wisdom literature is really interesting uh, in the way that it points to Jesus. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning. And uh, we thank you for Jesus who, uh, as we will discover uh, in a few minutes, is the embodiment of your wisdom. And uh, we just want to follow him. And so we thank you again for Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So to understand wisdom literature, I want to start out kind of with the Santa story. All right? If you're familiar with the Santa story, and I think probably everybody is, you know that the Santa story is about a lot of things, but one of the things the Santa story is about is about behavior. All right, um, let's go ahead and put this text up on the screen. Uh, you've heard this song before. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. How are all of us not in therapy, right? Um, Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. What? What is this? He knows when you're awake. 
He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. I don't understand how this doesn't traumatize all of us, but um, the Santa story is primarily about encouraging good behavior. Uh, I know a lot of you, and I'm not going to ruin this for anybody, but a lot of you run the elf on the shelf thing, right? Um, uh, And that was just invented a few years ago. This is a good example of how rich you can get off of one good idea, right? You you only need one, all right? You don't need a bunch of good ideas. You only need one. Um, But let me put this up on the screen for you. The Elf on the Shelf is a fun-filled Christmas tradition that has captured the hearts of children everywhere who welcome home one of Santa's scout elves each holiday season. The magical scout elf helps Santa manage his naughty and nice lists uh, by taking note of a family's Christmas adventures and reporting back to Santa at the North Pole nightly. And I know, I know from several parents uh, through the years that like the main time of year they are able to control their kids' behavior is Christmas time because of that elf, right? As soon as they start to get out of line, you just kind of point to the elf, you know. He's going to report back, right? Um, If you want to know what this looks like on steroids, all right? So the Santa story is primarily about behavior. And if you want to know what it looks like on steroids, the Germans uh, way back, uh, they've since stopped this because of how traumatizing it was to children. But uh, the Germans used to tell the story of Krampus, all right? Um, Krampus was a horned anthropomorphic figure who was half goat and half demon. And during the Christmas season, he would punish kids who misbehave, all right? That's what behavior management looks like on steroids, all right? So, um, and they since realized that they were really hurting kids with this, you know, story. And, and so Germans decided uh, sometime, I think, in the 18th century um, to, to stop doing that, to stop contrasting St. Nick with Krampus, right, a, a, a demon goat. So, um, and I think they were right on that, just for the, I think that was a good decision, all right? So, and many people think that this is the story of the Bible, That the story of the Bible, the story of God, is that God's primary role is to get us to manage our behavior. Um, So we talked about this a few years ago in a series that we call True-ish, right? We we did this series, and in this uh, series, we talked about the dominant way that our culture kind of views God right now is is this teaching called, I'll put it on the screen for you, is moralistic therapeutic deism. Right? And there's five tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. You can impress people at work tomorrow if you just want to drop that in. How was church yesterday? Well, we talked about moralistic therapeutic deism. What did you talk about? Now Christmas, right? So um, <laughs> there are five tenets to this teaching. I want to show you two of them because that's, this really is not what this sermon is about. But I want you to see kind of how our culture is viewing God these days, right? Here's the first tenet. God wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught by the Bible and all the other major world religions. So in moralistic therapeutic deism, the highest value of that is that we be nice. Here's a quote from it. Moralistic therapeutic deism is about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. That being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible at work, work on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. So the highest value of our culture, right, is niceness, that that we are perceived as being good, moral, nice people. And that's true-ish, right, to to go back to our series. Um, And because the highest priority is niceness, 
not relationship to God. We're going to talk about the difference between this and Christianity in a minute. Because the highest priority is niceness and not relationship with God, this leads us to the second tenet. That God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. All right? That's the second tenet of this. That, and I honestly think this perfectly describes our culture right now. That if I'm a good person, if I'm a nice person, and that's the goal of life, then God shows up for me when I have a problem. Right? And outside of a problem, God really is not that needed in my life. This is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And it, it describes our culture really well. That I'm trying to be a nice person. I'm trying to be perceived as a nice person. And if I'm nice, then God will show up when, I, when, I, when something bad happens to me. And, and you've seen this trending for a real long time. Some of you may, may have been in church uh, during 9-11, right? When we had a national problem and attendance, attendance spiked. That people were, you know, if, if I'm a nice person, God will show up when I have, we have a major problem, so kind of get back to it. In 2011, uh, during the financial collapse, attendance spike. And listen, I'm, I'm glad about those things, but I just don't want us to confuse moralistic therapeutic deism with Christianity. They are different, right? So Christianity teaches um, that, that it's not that God isn't interested in our behavior at all. God has lots of commands and uh, he, he is interested in it. It's just that this is a couple degrees off from the truth. The Bible would uh, teach that we are invited into, through the blood of Jesus, we are invited into a relationship with God and we are called into a relationship that we are called to love God. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we strive to grow in our love for God every day through prayer and Bible reading and worship. And as our relationship with him increases, as our love for him increases, the Bible teaches that we begin to walk in this thing called wisdom. Right? And so while the Santa story talks a lot about behavior, the Bible uses this phrase again and again called walking in wisdom. The Bible talks more about wisdom than behavior management. So let me give you a definition of wisdom in the Bible. Wisdom is a change of priorities, values, and decision-making that flows from a relationship with God that flows from a relationship with Jesus. So it's a change of our priorities, a change of our values, a change of our decision-making that flows from our relationship with and love for Jesus. That's wisdom in the Bible. Um, that, that while the Santa story is obsessed with behavior and behavior management starts with me, right? Behavior management is I need to do better. I need to decide better. I need to be a better person. Behavior management is all about me. Wisdom is all about knowing God. Right, so you see the difference there, right? Wisdom is about knowing God, loving God, worshiping God, and then God, through a relationship with us, God gives us his wisdom as a gift. And we begin to walk in, uh, we begin to walk in, our, in, in the wisdom of God, and it changes our decisions, it changes our behavior, but it starts with a relationship. So there's an ancient story in the Old Testament uh, about the transition of leadership from David to Solomon. And uh, Solomon is getting uh, ready to be king and all that. And his dad was a man after God's own heart. His son's about to take over. And let me show you what happens in this text. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for anything. Can you imagine receiving that gift? Right? Christmas is in what, nine days or so. You're going to sleep tonight. God comes to you in a dream and says, ask for whatever you want. 
truth time. What do you ask for? Right? Ask for whatever you want. I'll tell you what I'd be, t- our, our home with two kids, right? One of our kids is a baby, but our home with two kids is feeling small. Right? So I'd be tempted to say to God, our home's feeling small, God. We need to, you know, that, that sort of thing. Maybe for you, it's a new car. Your, your car's on the fritz. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe for you, for you it's money. That cash is the gift that keeps on giving. Maybe for you, it's, uh, it's good health. Right? Truth time, right? God shows up. You ask for whatever, anything you want. Ask for it. What do you ask for? Let me show you. Solomon's going to shame us all here, right? So let me show you what he asked for. He says, You have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in this place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father, David, be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust on the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people, for who is able to govern this people of yours? In this moment, Solomon's relationship with God was solid enough that he knew the thing as he stepped into leadership, the thing he needed the most was God's wisdom, right? Not man's wisdom, not culture's wisdom, not family wisdom, God's wisdom. And the Bible is full of, it's called wisdom literature. The Bible is full of this kind of wisdom literature of, thing, of, of, of truths that flow from our relationship with God. And it's, it's, full, of, it's full of this wisdom, wisdom literature. For instance, there's the book of Proverbs. A lot of Proverbs was written by Solomon, but there's a series of verses that, uh, like Scott said, these are, not, these are not promises. These are just things that are generally true. But th- this is articulating for us what a wise life looks like. And it's just one kind of statement. There's no real flow to them most of the time. It's just kind of one statement after after another of, man, you've got a relationship with God. You love God. Here is his wisdom. Let me show you a few of them. All right. Proverbs 25, 15. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Now, wouldn't it be great if our culture just followed that one proverb, right? That man, if we'd stopped yelling so much and, and showed a little bit of patience. Maybe our nation would Figure some stuff out, right? Uh, Proverbs 25, 16. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it and you will vomit. Right? Great proverb for Christmas time, I think. Right? As we're all overeating, all right? Here's another great one for Christmas. Proverbs 25, 17. Seldom set foot into your neighbor's house. Too much of you and they'll hate you. Right? You just need to, like, put that on a banner at Christmas time, Right? Let's not get too much of each other, right? I think you need to go home, right? So, all right, Proverbs 25, 21, 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head, and the Lord your God will reward you, all right? And Proverbs is just, there's some really funny ones. There's some really practical ones. There's some ones about the future, some ones. It's a really great book to read. I like Scott's idea about just kind of reading one a day uh, while we work through Christmas. Then there's Ecclesiastes. Right? Ecclesiastes is kind of an autobiography of Solomon in terms of his search for wisdom, his search for life. I love that we sang a couple songs about finding life because Ecclesiastes is all about searching for life. Where is he going to find wisdom? Where is he going to find life? And there's like a chapter on pleasure and a chapter on work and a chapter on riches. And at the end of each one, Solomon is so discouraged because he hasn't found wisdom and he hasn't found life. And then toward the end of the journey, he says this, remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
he comes around to this idea that God is the source of my wisdom. God is the source of life. I need to follow him. And then there's Job, right? Job is a story about a man who lost everything, lost his family and his money. He lost it all. He lost, he, he literally lost everything. And one of the, the kind of themes of the book of Job is where do you find wisdom? How do you live in wisdom when you've lost so much? when you've lost nearly everything, where, where does wisdom come from? So my senior year, I went to a uh, Christian high school, my senior year. And one of the things that the, the seniors uh, were, were tasked with every year was picking at the beginning of the year, picking a theme verse, right? And if you know me, I'm, I love like a nice motivational anthem, right? And so I advocated hard for, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? I love verses like that. Yeah, we're, gonna go for, we're gonna go for the mountain. We're gonna conquer it. We're gonna take it, that, that sort of thing. Um, when that got rejected, I was like, how about, I know the plans for you, says the Lord. I have plans for you, says the Lord. Plans to not hurt you, but to prosper you and to give you a, a future. I, I, I love that verse of, you know, these plans that God has for us to prosper us, not to harm us or hurt us. And our class ended up at the beginning of the year uh, choosing a verse from Job. This is depressing, right? Don't you want to go you know, after the mountain or whatever? And they, they picked this, this verse from Job, and I wasn't the biggest fan of it. Uh, and then three months later, my mom passed away. And for the next couple decades, this has become, this verse that was picked out you know, three months before my mom passed away, this has become my favorite verse. Uh, Job 23.10, he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. That's wisdom. That in the middle of your greatest trial, you don't give up on God. You don't turn your back on God because God is going to do something beautiful even with this. And so Job teaches us what wisdom looks like when it all falls apart. And so I told you last week about this book that I kind of had to study through in college called Toward an Old Testament Theology. Right? And this book was really, really dry. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I told you about how my friends and I would meet in the cafeteria of my college, and we'd have toward an Old Testament theology on one side of the table and a dictionary on the other. And we would regularly have to look up words from toward, toward an Old Testament theology. And I remember just thinking, I am never going to use this book again. Why do I have to study this? Why, why is our professor making us do this? And multiple times I've gone back to toward an Old Testament theology. Um, and I've grown to really appreciate it. But in that book, he makes the argument that in terms of the Bible, there are these themes, or he calls them seams that hold the Bible together, canonical seams. So there, there are themes that you can see from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and it kind of holds the Bible together. And two of those themes that he highlights again and again are knowledge, knowing God, right? That we are, we are called to know God, to worship him, to love him. So knowing God is one of the seams, and the other seam is the wisdom of God. So it's knowing God, and then out of that relationship with God comes the wisdom of, of God. And so those are the two kind of major uh, themes of, of the Bible, of, of knowing God and walking in wisdom with God. And so let me tell you how committed to this idea God the Father was. He was so committed to this canonical theme of knowing and walking in wisdom that 2,000 years ago, he sent us his son Jesus. 
And he sent his son Jesus to a manger who grew up to be a man so that first of all, we could know God because Jesus was God with flesh on. And so if you want to know God, study Jesus. To have seen Jesus is to see the Father. And so he sent us himself in human flesh so that we could know God better. And then the second thing that Jesus does is he shows us up close and personal what wisdom looks like. And so in Jesus, we see both of these themes, the ability to know God and the ability to walk in the wisdom of God. So if you want to know what wisdom looks like, if you want to hear what it sounds like, if you want to look, see what it is with, 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 uh, with skin on, study Jesus. There are two things that are true about Jesus. One is, um, and I stole this from somebody, I don't love, love, love this terminology, but it, I think it works okay. Jesus is our wise sage. Right? It makes it sound like out of the karate kid is what I don't like about it, right? Um, that he's our sensei, you know, sort of thing. But um, he is our wise sage. And, and here's what it means by that. That Jesus taught, for three years he taught so many wise things. Right? You studied just, uh, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount starting in a couple weeks, uh, right up until just before Easter. We're going to be in it for about 15 weeks. We're going to study these words, and you're going to find in that series that just one wise thing after another. Let me kind of give you one. Um, not from the Sermon on the Mount, because we're going to be in that for 15 weeks, but another one. So in your Old Testament, um, there are 613 commands from God. Right? 613, right? That's a lot of commands. And so you might imagine that with that many uh, commands, there's a lot of complexity with interpretation, a lot of complexity with opinion. 613 commands, you're going to get what? 5,000 different opinions on what those commands mean, right? And, and, uh, and the rabbis in Jesus' day, they would always argue about what these commands mean and which ones are the most important and which ones can we kind of disregard, right? They used to have these debates. And so they came to Jesus and they kind of were going to trick him. And they said, what do you think? We're all arguing about these 613 commands. What do you think, Jesus? Let me show you what he said. They said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. That's brilliant, right? That, that is so wise and so good. Because when you study the Old Testament, you see that all 613 commands, all of those commands can hang on one of those banners, right? They're either about loving God or they're about loving your neighbor. And so Jesus kind of whittles it down and it makes sense. If Jesus was God with human flesh on, it would make sense that he knows what the commands are about, right? And, and Jesus absolutely did. Love God, love others. He is a wise sage. He said so many wise things. Uh, we're going to study them in that, in that series coming up on the Ten Commandments. That series is called Red Letters, right? Um, for th those of you that are kids, we used to have these paper Bibles, um, we didn't have our Bibles on our phones back when I was growing up. We had these paper Bibles, and the words of Jesus, you can see it on my Bible, the words of Jesus would be in red. So I don't think they do that with digital Bibles, although I'm not sure. Um, but th that's why, as soon as we kind of came up with the idea of red letters, I was like, we're, we're kind of aging ourselves here. Because we I still carry this around, right? Uh, I still like my paper Bible. Um, and uh, the, the, the words of Jesus, so we're going to study the red letters um, of the New Testament and see what Jesus said because he was so wise. All right, Jesus is our wise sage and Jesus is wisdom acted. 
So in addition to his teaching, we have these amazing stories about how Jesus lived, how he treated his enemies, how he acted toward those that were far from God. You want to know how you should treat your unbelieving neighbor? Check out how Jesus did right? Um, how, how he treated his friends, how he treated his disciples. We see patterns in his life about how he would slip away and get some rest so he wasn't so um, overwhelmed. He'd, he'd get rejuvenated. And in him, we see the wise life. If you want to know what the wise life looks like, read and study Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read and study Jesus. He was wisdom lived. And so the apostle Paul seized on this idea that Jesus is wisdom he is our wisdom, and he came to bring us wisdom. And the Apostle Paul, uh, who was brilliant in his own right, he, he was thinking through this one day, and he wrote some really amazing words that I want to share with you as we um, start our downward descent with the sermon, all right? So uh, we're going to start fastening your seatbelts. We're going to land this plane to the best of our ability, all right? Here's the heading. Christ, the power and wisdom of God. All right, that kind of captures your attention based on what we've been talking about. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen, chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are, uh, which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul loved himself a good run on sentence, didn't he? That no flesh should bring glory uh, in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So he starts out by talking about this gospel of Jesus. It is going to always be foolish to some. And he's specifically talking about the Greeks in this text and about how the Greeks uh, regarded deity in their day. And by and large, the way the Greeks uh, kind of thought about deity, thought about God, is they viewed the gods as those who were far off. And they rarely interacted with humans. And when they did, the purpose of the gods was to punish humans. This was how they viewed gods. They're far off. They don't interact much. When they do interact, it's to punish human beings. And they had this view of the gods that they were cold and callous toward people. Um, and our role as human, the human role with the gods was to placate them, was to try to make them happy. But they were, in the Greek mindset, they were very difficult to please. But that was the, the role of the human being was to try to placate gods. And so this Jesus story Remember the Jesus story. It's the story of God who left heaven 
and put on human flesh and humbled himself and went to the cross for the salvation of human beings. Many Greeks heard that story and their initial thought was it was so different than the way they viewed gods that when they first heard the story of Jesus, they thought it was foolish. And this is what he's referring to, that some, he specifically mentions the Greeks. They think this is foolish. The idea of a God who would humble himself, put on human flesh, a God who would sacrifice himself for the salvation of humans. No, no, no. The gods punish human beings. They don't save human beings. They thought this was foolishness. But for Paul, who had experienced resurrected Jesus, this story forever changed the way Paul viewed God. Read his writings. That he began, Paul was a grace junkie. He loved celebrating grace. He loved talking about grace. He he loved uh, articulating grace. He loved talking about the love of God again and again and again. Paul is celebrating grace. He began to see in Jesus this God who loves his creation, this God who would die for his creation, a God who came close to his creation, not a God who is far off, aloof, angry, looking to punish That wasn't the God that Paul saw in resurrected Jesus. He saw a God who was willing to get close, a God who loves his creation, a God who sacrificed for his creation, and it forever changed the way he viewed God. And it also forever changed the way he viewed wisdom and the way he viewed life. That for Paul, wisdom flowed from when he saw Jesus this way, that Jesus was God coming close, sacrificing, saving. When he began to see that, he said, this is going to change the way that I live my life forever. And it did. Paul began to treat people with more kindness, more love, more compassion. He began to sacrifice for them. His view of Jesus forever changed the way that he, lo- that, that he lived. And I love how Paul describes Jesus in this text. He says that, yes, Jesus is our wisdom, Wise, sage, wisdom acted. Jesus is the wisdom of God. But you notice what else he said? He's also the power of God. So Jesus didn't just come to earth. This is part of God getting close. Jesus didn't just come to earth and say, this is what the wise life looks like. This is how you are called to live. And then say, peace out, and he went to heaven. He didn't do that. He is also the power of God. So he empowers us to live the life that he's called us to live. So Jesus was our wise sage. He is wisdom acted. He says, this is the best way to live. In Jesus, you can see the best way to live. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his power so that we can live a wise life. And James actually goes so far as to say, hey, if you're a child of God, if you want wisdom, ask for it. God is willing and compassionate and wanting to help you. So if you're in a situation in your life where I like, I don't see it in the life of Jesus, how he interacted with his rude aunt that's coming for Christmas in a week, right? I don't see in Jesus how how you live in my scenario. James would say, well, he's got you covered on that. Ask God for wisdom. And and he is ready and willing and able uh, to give it for you. So this is one of the gifts. I just think we don't talk about it probably enough at Christmas time. At Christmas time, we talk about joy, hope, and peace, and salvation, But that baby in a manger, today I want to celebrate wisdom. That he came to show us what the wise life looks like, and he came to teach us what the wise life 
looks like. So back to Paul. I'm going to close with this. And I know I said that a few minutes ago, but I really mean it this time. All right. Um, that he makes a couple points that I want to kind of go through kind of quickly, but I think they're important for us to hit on that. When Jesus becomes your sage, your teacher of wisdom, and he becomes your, the way you view wisdom, when Jesus becomes your Lord and he becomes your source of wisdom, there's a couple things that are going to happen. One is you will have unique confidence in God. Right? When you make Jesus your Lord and you begin to walk in his wisdom by the power of his Holy Spirit, it will develop in you a confidence for God. Paul specifically talks about how we won't have a need for signs anymore. Truth time. Do you still seek signs from God? I sometimes do. Right? When, I'm in a, when I'm in a real quandary and I don't know what to do, sometimes I'll say, God, if you want me to... I'm going to lay this towel out at night, let it be dry in the morning, right? That's that's a real nerdy biblical joke. But anyway, um, but you you get the point. I I do these sorts of things, God. God, I want to walk in your wisdom. If you want me to, then I need you to do this. And and that's simply asking for a a sign, and and we do it. Um, But when you live the Jesus life and you begin to live his wisdom, you know what walking in wisdom is? It is a daily reminder that God is good and God is right. And so when you walk in wisdom in a, in a daily way, and uh, I've been uh, a Christian really almost since the womb, right? Uh, I was in church, you know, um, just very shortly after I came out, my parents decided they better get to church. Um, and when they saw one look at my beautiful face, um, like, we're going to need God on this one. So, and they were right. So, um, so when you, when you walk in wisdom, it is a daily confidence booster that, oh man, I can see that this is the wisest way to live. This is the best way to live. And your confidence grows. And it happens over the lifetime because I've been a Christian for that long. And I still every once in a while are like, you know, can you give me a sign? Can you give me a sign? And you know what usually is impressed on my spirit? And I'll, I'll just say it to you because you know, I'm, I'm not going to declare this is from God because it's just impressed on me. Um, what I usually feel in my spirit in that moment is Jesus says, you want a sign? I left heaven and came to earth. I lived a perfect life. I went to the cross and I resurrected. Here's your sign, right? That's usually what I feel is that he's like, I've demonstrated to you that I know what I'm doing. But when, I wa- when I'm walking in wisdom in a better way, um, it's a daily reminder to me that he's good, all right? Um, you will appear foolish to some, and I believe this is really true in our culture right now, that when you follow Jesus, when you walk in his wisdom, you are going to look a little bit crazy. And I, I think as culture changes and shifts and all I think um, what, the way we look crazy changes for different generations. So it used to be like real cra- crazy to be generous, right? Generosity was considered like a real crazy thing. Our culture has kind of picked up, I think, on on one of the Christian values of generosity. And our our culture really celebrates generosity more more than it used to. So I'm not sure that's as countercultural as it used to be, although I I think it still is to a point. But you know what looks kind of crazy now? Um, Political kindness, right? Uh, Disagreeing in grace, sexual purity, having your time priorities centered on God. There is always going to be a part of Christianity where people see how you're living. When you're following Jesus, people see how you're living and like, you're crazy. And that's how it should be. It's going to be foolish to some. 
There'll be a growing tension with some that sometimes a group of people engaging in holy living raises up in anger in those who don't live the same way. And usually it sounds like this. So you think you're better than me. You think you're better than me. No, I really don't think I'm better than you. I, I, I've been saved by grace, but that it's changed. Jesus has changed me. And so there's always gonna, there's always gonna be a little bit of tension with people in, in your life, um, especially the more you follow Jesus, um, if we're living the way that we should. And then hopefully you will be able to give glory to God, glory to Jesus in a unique way. That when you're walking in Jesus's wisdom and the people in your life are like, you think you're better than me or how, you're different. How have you changed? When they, when they begin to raise those things, hopefully, um, and I've dropped the ball on this a few times, but hopefully um, you will have the presence of mind to say, no, that's not me, that's Jesus. And you'll give glory to Jesus in a unique way. But hopefully people in our life are seeing that we're different and they're asking us about the differences and we're able to give glory to Jesus in a unique way that, man, I'm not awesome. And whenever you're giving your testimony, you want to make sure to say that. I'm not awesome. Jesus is awesome. And he's changed me from the inside out. So wisdom is a great gift that flows from a relationship with Jesus. Right? The message of Christianity is not be nice and God will show up to help you when you need it. Uh, no. That is, not the, that is not the message of Christianity. Just be nice. God will show up when you need him. No. The message of Christianity is you are invited into a relationship with Jesus. You're encouraged into a relationship with Jesus to know him and worship him and walk with him. And as a gift to his children, he gives his wisdom. He teaches it, he demonstrates it, he empowers us to live it, but his wisdom comes when that relationship grows. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we know that this message, uh, there is... Um, in your day and in our day, in, in, in the day that Jesus walked, it, there, there is a little bit of tension with this message, that it seems foolish to some, um, and, and it seems ridiculous to some, a God who would leave heaven and come to earth for our rescue and our redemption. But man, we've experienced you, Lord, and we know that tomb is empty, and we believe. We wanna grow in our relationship with you, we want to know you better. We want to know you more. We want to love you more. And man, we want to walk in your wisdom. I'm just going to speak for the room right now. We want to walk in your wisdom. We believe that you taught the best way to live, that you lived the best way to live. And we want to walk like you. We want to talk like you. We want to sound like you. We want to look like you. Our mission statement as a church, a growing family journeying together to be more like you, to be more like Jesus. Help us to do it. Empower us to do it. May we be like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you look at the cross of Jesus, some see foolishness and some see power and wisdom. And so if you're in that power and wisdom camp and you see the cross and you're like, man, this is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. Jesus is it. He showed us the best way to live. We're going to celebrate that right now in a time called communion, uh, where we pass um, two, some trays out, two cups stacked on top of each other. One has the, the, is the bread that represents Jesus' body given on the cross. The other is some blood, that, uh, some juice that represents uh, his blood poured out on the cross. And it is an opportunity for us to celebrate Jesus 
to celebrate his resurrection, to celebrate his sacrifice, and to just say, man, Jesus, I want to be like you when I grow up. I want to continue to be like you. And so we're going to receive communion together. Um, You can just spend some time thanking Jesus for his sacrifice, thanking Jesus for what he's done, um, and and dismiss kind of the idea as you're holding that, that this is not foolish to me. This is power. This is wisdom. This is good. And you can hold on to those. And after everybody's served, I'm going to come back up, and we'll receive it together as a church family.